You're listening to episode 122 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Andrew Golub. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Welcome to the Tennis Files podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mirban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to the Tennis Files podcast. My name is Mirban Iranshad, a former Division I college tennis player. And on the show, I interview the world's best tennis pros, coaches, and experts to help you improve your tennis game. And today, I have Andrew Golub on the show. He is the founding and managing member of Aerobar, which is a gluten-free and all-natural high-performance energy bar. And it was fantastic to interview Andrew about his tennis career, which was at a very high level. Uh, He played junior national tournaments and super nationals. And then he played four years at the University of Miami. And it was really cool to see how he progressed from a high-level tennis career to coaching and then to creating a product that is targeted at tennis players to help them improve. And uh, I've actually tasted and consumed the Aerobar uh, in a couple different flavors. And it's actually a fantastic product. It makes me feel great and gives me good energy. Actually, after our interview, Andrew was super cool to contact me and offer 30% off to everybody. So if you want to take advantage of that, you can use the code TENNISFILES30. That's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S-3-0 and use that at aerobar.com. So pretty significant. Uh, appreciate that, Andrew. That's very kind. And I'm glad to pass it on to all of you if you'd like to try out Aerobar. But for now, I would like to go straight to the interview with Andrew, and I think you're going to really enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my interview with Andrew. Hey, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Uh, it's really a pleasure to have here Andrew Golub, who is a former Division One college tennis player and one of the founding members of Aerobar. Andrew, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast and also for sending me some of the bars, man. They are excellent. I had uh, one before my run actually yesterday and uh, really enjoyed it. So uh, thanks for coming on the show and really appreciate your time. Well, I appreciate you having me and uh, glad you enjoyed them and look forward to the interview. Yeah, for sure. And we're going to get into uh, quite a few different areas uh, and experiences that you've had. But first off, I mean, how does it feel to have created a product that you thought of? It was just an idea at first. And then now you have people behind it like John Isner, Steve Johnson, and a couple of my podcast guests, uh, James Blake and Michael Russell. I mean, how does that feel for you? It's... um it's a little surreal and it's really cool um, that, you know, all the years of playing tennis and developing these bonds and relationships with a bunch of guys and how close knit the tennis community is to be able to interact with all these guys and now work with them. And it's just very authentic, you know, it's just a very easy transition and it's great. I mean, I've enjoyed every minute of it and it's in an, in an arena that I, that's molded my life and that I love. So it's perfect. 
Yeah, awesome. It just it's great to see you. Uh, and as we'll talk about, you're staying in tennis and giving back and uh, creating some really high quality stuff, healthy stuff. So, um, but one fun question that I like to ask my guests, and I'll ask you, Andrew, is uh, what is your very first memory of hitting a tennis ball? Well, my dad played tennis in Germany, not very good at it, but he loved it, had a passion for it. And uh, my brother, Alex, um, he played for Florida State. He's five years older than me. So I remember being a young kid watching him play, and all I wanted to do was play. And uh, my first memory is actually hitting with him. So, you know, we went out, we played. Um, Long story short, as the years went on, all he did was cheat me when we went and played, so we couldn't play together anymore. But um, it's public was, now. <laughs> yeah, now it's public. Exactly, he'd bully me. Five years older, so. But um, yeah, that was my first memory is uh, with my family. I mean, they. My dad was super passionate about it. Loved tennis. I mean, absolutely loved it. He grew up in Germany, started there, and came to the states. And my brother was playing competitively, and it's all I wanted to do. So. Awesome. And so, yeah, I was just about to ask you, so when you saw your dad play and especially your brother play as well, I mean, what was it the competitive aspect that mainly drew you to it or was it, did it just look cool or what, what was the main thing that made you love tennis? That's funny. I, my brother didn't have the best attitude on court initially <laughs> when he was younger and my parents would always complain about it and they'd have conversations in the house. And I remember saying, I want to play so bad and I'm never going to do it that way, mom. I'll never do that way, dad. I'm going to be like, I'm going to be the opposite of that. And that really truly is what motivated me to play. Like I just, you know, that competitive juices between me and him, like I, I wanted to be better. I just wanted to be good at it and not act that way. So, you know, that, that's kind of my first, that's, that's why I wanted to do it. Very nice. And you framed it perfectly. I mean, I'm sure they had some concerns that, oh, we don't want to have two kids there, you know, smashing the rackets and everything. But um, no, good stuff, man. And as far as uh, tennis players, uh, pro tennis players, I mean, were there any ones in particular that you idolize? And if so, why? Uh, when you were young? Absolutely. Um, when I was young, since again, my dad's from Germany. We were huge Becker fans and um, and Edberg because and believe, you know, they played all the time. But mainly because I had a one-handed backhand. I never had a two-hander. I started with a one-hander at seven years old because of those guys. And uh, again, fast-forwarding, my backhand turns out to be my best shot by a mile, but I just loved like the way they played and, and their backhands, and they came to the net and volleyed. And you know, I was, I was always a very good doubles player. I was always very good around the net, so like, kind of molded myself in that light, and we watched a lot of them. You know, My dad was a massive Becker fan. He bought, I know I remember him buying my brother that racket where you could like adjust it on the bottom mm. where it would like move up and down the Becker, the Becker racket. I mean, it was a horrible racket, <laughs> but we bought it and none, Damn I mean, marketing. none of us could use it. <laughs> yeah. None of us can use it. But, but then when I uh, got a little older, I was like 16, I did switch to the Edberg racket. And I used that all the way until college. So, um, those were two guys, you know, that I really looked up to. Awesome stuff, man. And you know, as I mentioned, you know, you you were actually you know one of the best juniors in the country, having been ranked in the top twenty in the sixteens and eighteens. First off, like at what point in your junior career did you actually decide for yourself that you were going to train really seriously and try to be the best player that you could be? It was really early. It was I started at seven, and wow. it was right away, really, because you know, like I said, my brother's five years older. They, my parents, already had all the knowledge of coaching and what not to do, what to do, you know, I, I had a lot of knowledge of how to act, how not to act, 
I mean, I, you know, I was lucky to be the second one because I got to, my brother turned out to be a fantastic player and get it all together. I mean, he played number one for Florida State, but I had a massive head start by seeing the mistakes and everything. And I was serious right from the get go. I mean, by the time I was nine, I believe I was probably, I think it was like top 50 in the country already in the 12s by the time I was nine. So I, I got it real quick. You know, I, I, I got the crash course, the do's and don'ts, the, you know, and a lot of it was, like I said earlier, I, I wanted to like do it better. And, uh, so mm-hmm. I was into it right away, but thanks to seeing, seeing them do it. Great stuff. And I mean, you, you talk about the mistakes and things you've learned. I mean, I, th- I guess one of them was temperament on the court, but what were a couple other things that, that you learned? Um, definitely the temperament is one of them, but, um, work ethic, I mean, seeing how hard it was, uh, to be good. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, my dad comes from a very, you know, poor background in uh, war torn Germany. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so like we were a, a very much non like excuse BS family. And, uh, I just wasn't allowed and it never crossed my mind to be honest with you, but I was never really allowed to have the excuses or, you know, feel sorry for myself. My dad was just very tough in that regard. So yeah, that helped mold me for sure. Great stuff. And then as far as your training environment, I I assume it might've changed, you know, throughout the years in your junior years, but like what, what type of training environment were you in? You know, was it like an academy or did you just go train with players? And could you describe that? Yeah, it evolved. Um, I'm a creature of habit. I like to, I like, uh, chemistry. I like to keep it the same. And I still believe that to this day, even through ups and downs, I don't think changing is always the right solution unless maybe you grow out of a situation or it's really, truly not working anymore. But I didn't have many coaches. Um, but I evolved over time and yeah, I started in a group setting, obviously, you know, which was good because I mean, tennis can be very lonely at times and you're out there, it's not a team sport. So it is nice the group environment. And I do think it's valuable to have those friendships because I mean, you know, when you're a serious tennis player, school friends aren't much of an option because you know, you're just training so much. So your peers are really your tennis family. Mm -hmm. So, um, I started in a group environment when I was young. And then as I got a little bit older, I was doing a combo of both, which was a lot of private lessons one-on-one, but with group setting for match play and, and hitting which again, I think is the right way to do it. Um, and then as I turned like 16 or so, mm-hmm. I, I started going one-on-one, a lot of one-on-one. And to be honest with you, I think probably that was a mistake for me. Mm. Um, it, it, it made me lose a lot of the fun out of it. It became very, very serious because it's one-on-one with the same person every single day. And I think that can get very strenuous. And, uh, so yeah, I mean, that was my journey. I was, and then I went to college. Um, so it was, it was, don't get me wrong. I improved a ton in the one-on-one setting. It's just the passion and the love started fading a little bit because it was just, it was pretty lonely (laughs) to be honest with you. So, um, it's a lot easier. I felt the best setting for me was a mixture and a combination of both. Um, it allowed you, it allowed me to, develop as a person and a player and have friends and have people to talk to and hang with. And then, you know, okay. Yeah. And, but you know, there's so many ways to do it. I, I'm not here to say I have the magic formula because I don't think anybody does. But, um, for me, 
personally, you know, I'm a, I'm a social guy. Like I like to have a good time. Probably would have been better for me to stick in, in a little combo setting. Yeah, no, I appreciate that insight there. And very true. You know, everybody functions differently and has to find, you know, their own path. And so when you mentioned that you you were doing just a ton of one-on-ones, I mean, so you just severely reduced the amount of group practice. I mean, what else did you have besides the lessons? Was it like other, just like match play with one other person or something like that? Well, that was the tough part. You know, it was a very situation where I had my like two hour private lesson every single day. And then I needed to find a match and I needed to find someone to play with. So a lot of phone calls like, hey, what are you doing today? I mean, you know, growing up in Miami, there's a lot of people to play with. But again, it wasn't like 100 percent structured. Right. It was like, oh, today I have a match, but I can't find one tomorrow. And, and it's you know, a little stressful. And then I did have strength conditioning training for another hour, which was set up at a set up time. But finding those, and, and then as kids, you know, you go in a match setting and you go find someone to play with, unless you're super, super disciplined, like super disciplined. And, and like you said, I was ranked really high and I was a really good player, but you're still a kid. And, you know, that unsupervised, you know, going to find someone, I don't think the matches were as quality as they could be. Um, not, there was no guidance in them. I was just out there, which again, there's value to that as well. Do it on your own, learn it, but there's also value to having someone there to watch it and evaluate it and break it down for you and tell you what you're doing right, doing wrong. And, and, and I would think the majority, not think, I know the majority of kids, heavy majority are going to be way more productive with a coach or someone there in a match play setting than just going solo <laughs> to go play some matches. So yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And uh, you know, in doing some research on you, Andrew, I saw that you obviously you had some great results. But I saw in particular you played, I think, the Super National Clay Courts in Maryland, and you got something like eighth place. And I, I mean, that's a big tournament. I remember playing that, and you know, I did not do as well. I lost first round, but uh, you know, it's a big, <laughs> big tournament <laughs> and great experience seeing you know all the other great players in the country. And so uh, I was just wondering if you could talk about that tournament in particular, and uh, you know how that went for you. That's so funny you bring that up. I uh, I remember that tournament vividly. Um, mm-hmm. I just won the state closed in Florida um, in the 16s. I finished. I think I finished two or three in the state at that time, and I played. I, I was playing phenomenal. I was playing as good as I've ever played. And going into that tournament, I really truly felt I could win it. And I believe it was the quarterfinals. I was playing a guy by the name of York Allen. Um, play, played for Duke, really good lefty. I think he was the number one seed or top two for sure. And <laughs> this is actually funny because it goes back to the attitude conversation with my brother. This is the first time I probably melted down on a tennis court. Um, I won the first set in like 10 minutes. I mean, I couldn't play any better. It was 6-1. And I recall going into the second set and I got broken at 5-4 or so. You know, we were on serve the whole way. I got broken at 5-4 and I I like bounced my racket. I didn't really mean to like break it and it, and it snapped like it cracked. So I was like, Oh boy. And it was the beginning of like a downward spiral. And then the next set I break him the first game in the third set, he breaks me back. And I don't know what was going on in my head. I, I wanted to win that match so bad that I hit my racket on the ground, broke another racket. <laughs> and my dad, I can wow. see my dad's <laughs> face right now. I remember how disgusted he was watching me. Because like I wasn't like that. It just wasn't me. And I was just so into it and wanted to win that match so bad. So we go all the way again to 5-4. And he breaks me again to win the match. So I, I lost 4-4 four and four in the next two sets. 
and I melted down. I like took a few rackets out of my bag and I smashed them and I'm like, Oh my God. Like I was just, I melted down. Oh my goodness. It was, (laughs) it was not me. I don't know what came over me, but, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, my dad handled it pretty well. Uh, surprisingly, I thought I was dead, but I, I got in the car and he's like, (laughs) listen, I've never seen you do that. You wanted to win so bad. And he always said to us, he goes, I will take someone who cares that much rather than someone out there who doesn't care. And he put that right. in perspective, which was really nice to, to, to deal with it that way. That taught me a lot, you know, instead of melting down on me, I was already in a dark enough place after losing that match. So, but then I, uh, I went into the back draw and I, I actually beat Andy Roddick that I think it was the next day. Um, in the, in the back draw, I played yeah. Andy like six, seven times. We've, we've had some wars. So, um, so I beat him, which was a good win. And, uh, yeah, I, it was a good tournament. I, I feel like I fell short because I was playing well enough to probably win it. But, uh, again, you live and you learn. And that was, that was one of my few meltdowns. I didn't really have many other ones. So yeah, that was funny. You brought that up. I remember that vividly, that tournament. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I assume it was at Woodmont and, uh, just a beautiful, uh, facility and everything, but yeah, that's super neat. I didn't realize that you had played uh, Roddick, but you know, you would think that you'd probably come across at least a few really good players because again, those were the top players in the country playing in that tournament. So wonderful stuff there. And so obviously, you did fantastic in your junior career, but I'm just curious. Everyone looks back sometimes and and thinks about what else they could have done. So is there anything that you know, looking back, you think you could have done differently to? to maybe even go farther in your junior career? Yeah, I do. Um, that's a great question. And I, you know, it's very clear to me what I could have done differently. And I, I, I think about that every now and then, not a lot, but you know, I'm watching a major, I'm watching a big tournament and, and you get that itch mm-hmm. again and you're like, Oh man, I could have mm-hmm. been out there possibly if I would have done this, this and this. Um, it's a maturity thing. It's listening to people who have been through it, who understand it, who are guiding you in the right direction and giving you the right answers at the time you don't realize it as a kid. I don't even know if it's a regret. It's almost like an immature thing where it's like, I was not old enough to realize what these people were telling me was the truth, meaning not the truth, but like to execute it. So, you know, staying focused on what you're doing, staying super Mm -hmm. committed, focused, dedicated, you know, one track mind. I mean, you know, put it, my dad was so adamant about me being a professional tennis player. He's like, trust me, trust me. You know, you'd always relate it to like, I go to work. I mean, my dad would go to work at six in the morning. I wouldn't see him until I felt I would go to sleep. I wouldn't see him. And the guy worked like a machine. He's like, trust me, put in the work now. You don't have to do that later in life. You'll be retired by 30 and blah, blah, blah. And you don't get it. You know what I mean? You get it now that you work, but you don't get it. Mm -hmm. And so I look back on that and I just wish I would have been more receptive and more mature and understanding that, um, I, I, truly think that was the difference i would have uh, like like you said i mean i was already a top junior i was right there with all those guys um there was no difference but the difference is you know i bring up a guy like roddick i mean his dedication commitment focus i mean he wanted it so bad you know while you know maybe a bunch of others are still joking around at the junior tournaments you know he was acting like a professional early um so yeah i think it was a maturity thing immature but again not like it's hard to say I regret it because you're like, I was a kid, you know, I just didn't know any better. Right. So yeah, I think that's it. Right. Don't know there. Any better. Yeah, right. Right. 
Yeah, no, again, uh, great yeah. stuff, Andrew. Appreciate that. And yeah, it's it's just so hard, you know, you're a kid and you don't you, you don't really know like what those sayings mean sometimes really until later in life, like you said. So, but as far as, uh, you know, your college career, you went to, you know, one of the best at University of Miami, but I, I was curious about that process. And we'll talk later about how you've, you've sent so many players to college on scholarships, but how was that experience for you uh, being recruited as a, a top player? That's an inter- it was an interesting experience. My first year, actually, I went to Arizona State. My freshman year, I went to Arizona State. Again, decision based on a little bit of immaturity. I went on a, a bunch of recruiting trips. I went to Alabama. I went to, uh, to uh, obviously, Arizona State. I went to a few others. And I loved Arizona State. And I loved Arizona State for the wrong reasons. Don't get me wrong. They were, they were, they were top <laughs> 10 in the country. And we were very good. I had one of the biggest doubles wins I've ever had there. But... I went there because it was the most fun trip I had. Um, it wasn't for focusing on my future, my career. It was more like, this is the most fun I've had. I'm going there. You know what I mean? So luckily, as I was going through the, the year, it just, I just wasn't happy there. It was a little far from home. It just, wasn't, mm-hmm. it just wasn't the right fit for me. And my brother actually called me and really pushed me to transfer. Um, he played, like I said, he played for Florida state. He went through the ringer of college. Like he knew what it was. And he's like, listen, you've got to transfer. You've got to get out of there. If you're not happy, don't waste another second, this and that. And I was not playing great. Um, because I mean, I wasn't happy. So, I mean, how can you play great? You know, if your mind is not in the right place. And so I decided to, I didn't even decide to transfer. I just decided to get my release and I went home after my first year. And while I was home, I was going to train to be a pro. I had enough of college tennis. I was like, my experience was terrible. I hated it. Like it was awful my freshman year and I was going to play pro and Jay Berger, who was the coach at the time, heard about that from one of my close friends at the time. His dad told him like, Hey, Andrew's going to play pro. I mean, if, if you want him to come to UM, like give him a holler. It, might, it may happen. I don't know. So he reached out to me. I remember coming into his office and I sat down with him. It was me, my dad and him. And a gentleman by the name of Michael Lang was there, who's one of my close friends to this day. And they sold me. I mean, I was, after I left that meeting, I was not turning pro and I was going to Miami. And, you know, I, I it, it sounded great. The environment sounded great. And it was the best decision I ever made. It was awesome. I had a great time. Jay taught me so much about myself, about work ethic. He finally made me realize the maturity thing, how to act, how to behave. And I went through some times there too, where I was not acting perfectly. So, but I finally got it together there and yeah, it was great. I mean, I made NCAAs and doubles. I think I'm one of two teams or maybe don't, I don't know, one or one or two teams in Miami history to make NCAAs for doubles. Had some big wins also there. You know, we beat the number one team in the country, uh, former pro Amir Delic and Calkins at Illinois. They were number one, had a win against them. So yeah. And I'm still to this day, on a group thread with uh, Tarek Elbasuni, Joel Berman, Jose Lieberman on a group thread. It's like a Miami tennis group thread, and we pretty much talk every day. So it was uh, it was a good decision, and Jay was phenomenal for me. Jay, as you probably know, Jay is very tough, no nonsense. He was a lot more similar to my dad, I think. That's probably why it worked for me. Um, a lot of people couldn't handle it because he's tough, but it resonated with me. It worked, so... I love it. Yeah. And uh, Jay Berger, uh, you know, top seven ranking, I think it was number seven in 1990. And yeah, it's just a great player and also coach. And 
know he's uh, worked with Todd as well, uh, Todd Widom, who we've had on the podcast before. Curious, uh, what did they say during that meeting with you that sold you? So my first environment, it just didn't work for me. It was, um, it, it just, it was, it was a bunch of guys on the team, great guys. They still, they're good, awesome people. It's just, I don't know. It was, it wasn't a family environment. You know, it was more, it, it just didn't feel right. It just wasn't a family environment. And when I came there and I sat in the office and I heard the things Mike was saying about the coaching staff and his teammates and, and Jay in general, and how I was going to love it there and have so much fun and this and that, that resonated with me. They convinced me that it was going to be more fun than what I was having. And we had a blast. I mean, my freshman year, we made it to sweet 16 should have beat Duke in the sweet 16 to go to elite eight to play Georgia. I mean, you know, we were, we were really good and it was fun. Um, we hosted regionals. I mean, it's just, it was just fun. They convinced me that it was going to be a fun environment. We used to play these games called two on two that uh, Rick Macy made famous, but Brian Getz was our coach who played for Duke, very good player. And he fed the games and it's just a fantastic, fun game. We used to do it for hours. And I think there's a lot of value to being happy. And all the guys on the team seemed happy. They weren't talking bad about the coaches. It was, you know, it was a very different feel and environment for me. And it was great. And I needed that. So, you know, because the environment before was just a little bit too negative for me. Mm, mm. Yeah. And you once again, kind of pretty much predicted my next question. Uh, And, you know, obviously you said that the people at Arizona State were great, but like what are, you know, and this is more for, I think, other coaches to kind of uh, take wind of and try to prevent, like, what was it in the environment? And you, you mentioned negativity, but I mean, what, what else was there? Like, I mean, was the training program like good or was it too much? I mean, what, what were the people on the team kind of more individual minded? Like uh, give us a little bit of insight into maybe some things that should, shouldn't be that way. I just think there was a division between the players and, and the coach, you know, mm. it just was a weird division. And, you know, I've seen him recently and we get along and he's a nice guy. Um, believe you know, it just, I don't know. There was something with the players and the coach didn't work. Like everyone got along with the assistant coach. So everyone went to the assistant coach and, you know, almost was like, well, why are we doing this? Why? It just wasn't that kind of environment where like the head coach, the assistant coach were the same team working with the player. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just was like one of those things where it's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It's like when you go complain to your mom about your dad or something, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it's like, I don't know. It just didn't feel right. And again, we're all young, immature kids. Trust me. I did plenty wrong. This isn't like on them. I, I, I did things stupid as well that warranted probably some of it, but still there's a way to keep that team environment. And at Miami, we had such a strong team environment. It was like family and at Arizona state, it just didn't feel that way. And that was, I think that's really important for coaches to hear. I actually do because I mean, at the end of the day, the the likelihood of anyone on your team being a professional tennis player is slim to none. So it needs to be a really cool and positive experience because college tennis is awesome and it's fun. And when you do it the right way as a team, I mean, we had so much fun on road trips at Miami. I mean, out of control fun stories that I have for the rest of my life. Right. And that was made possible by the coaches. You know, Jay, one example of that is Jay would take our per diem money and he would take us to like a much nicer restaurant always. And he would, and he would front the bill a little bit and he, you know, he'd just be like, you know, we're going to go to a nicer restaurant because let's just have fun. Like it was like a fun, you know, where are we going tonight? You know, type thing. It wasn't, it wasn't uptight. It wasn't, you know, he used to love when we got our friends out there, 
we used to have night matches. He switched us to night matches because he wanted like chaos out there. He wanted it nuts. He wanted it fun. We had Friday night matches and all our friends would come out and it would be <laughs> insane. I mean, we had one of the toughest environments to play in because of that. And it was fun, but that made it fun. You know, I mean, that was fun for us. I mean, that was again, 99.9% of us are done after college. So let's, you might as well make it to their, everyone's Super Bowl, right? So, and that's how we felt. Yeah, that that's amazing. I feel like I got to get Jay on here. I mean, yeah, that's the name of the game. And, you know, when I think of all the very successful uh, coaches out there, a lot of them, they're they're making sure that their programs are like family, like Brian Boland, who I've had on the podcast, and also uh, Todd recently. It's a family environment. So definitely love that. So about you studied, I think it, it was business, right? Did you study business in undergrad? Okay. How, how was it balancing your studies with tennis? Was that, was that a yeah. difficult thing to do for you? Yeah. You know, I didn't find it that difficult to balance my studies with my tennis. Um, I didn't always do a great job of it, <laughs> but I didn't find it difficult. <laughs> Again, I think it's like an immaturity thing. I think it's, you just don't see the light. Like you're in college and you want to have fun and you want to do everything and, you know, you're free and no parents and no nothing. And it's like, you just get a little overzealous at times and it's hard to stay focused, I would say. I don't think like the workload was too much ever. And Miami's a great school. And I don't ever feel like I don't ever feel like I had to come to my parents and be like, man, I can't handle school and tennis. Probably having a tough time handling school, tennis, and social life. <laughs> probably was that probably was the third factor in there that threw a monkey wrench. And but again, it was one of those things the first two years I might have struggled a little bit and then I got it together. I figured it out. You figure out your time management, you figure out when to take your classes. You know, I would say my advice on that is like, just take a deep breath, chill out. It, you know, even if you struggle for a semester or first year, it will, it will settle in. You'll settle. It's experience, right? You start getting experience, how to set up your schedule. You know, like I, I remember my last two years because the guys taught me that like, Hey, like front load your schedule, like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, just hammer the classes. Cause then we travel. So make sure like Thursdays and Fridays aren't that difficult, you know? So you have time to get ready for your trips and, and you're like, huh. So I remember Mondays were like my nightmare day. Monday was like all day school. Like, but, but after Monday, it got a lot easier. And so doing stuff <laughs> like that worked for me. And so I think that's the key in all of it. I, I, don't think, I don't think there's too much workload, at least not at Miami. You know, I didn't go to Harvard like James or anything like that. But um, I don't think at Miami that the workload was too tough. I think it's a balancing act and I think it's an experience thing. And once you figure it out, I think everything becomes a lot easier. For sure. I mean, there's a lot of resources out there. I mean, I remember going to my like, uh, this is like a student athlete center and they'd help you out with that. And, you know, whatever you want, you know, it's just a mindset thing. As far as like, you know, you mentioned earlier after Arizona State, you, you were training for a bit to become pro or had decided to do that. Did you ever think about turning pro uh, after college? Um, I did. And I actually, tra actually traveled one summer with Mike Lang who was playing some pro. Mm -hmm. And I am, I am not like a big traveler. Well, I wasn't then, um, not like a huge fan of it. And that environment at the time there were satellites. Um, and that environment was very tough for me. I traveled to about three or four. My dad would have spent any amount of money for me to be a pro tennis player. But I, after three or four tournaments, I called them. I said, I, this is just not, 
going to work for me. And, and it went back to one of those things where it was, you're traveling, you're living out of a suitcase. And again, you got to find people to hit with. I mean, you can't, I mean, if you're going to travel with a coach and a team, I mean, it's astronomical amounts of money. So to do it that way, you know, to do it the way we were doing it, just bumming around, sleeping on couches, sleeping here, you gotta, you gotta be a special individual. I mean, to be able to come through all that, it's not easy. And I look back mm-hmm. on that and I wish I would, again, had the maturity like I do now and I could have given it some time and understand the process, but I didn't want to waste my dad's money, to be honest with you. I felt bad because I wasn't in the right mindset. I was out there traveling. I was playing matches. And then, you know, I remember one match specifically, I lost a gentleman named Michael Costa, who's he's a comedian now. He played for Illinois. And I remember this match. I, I think it was like six, four and a third. It was a close three mm-hmm. set match. Last round of qualities in like my, my <laughs> second term at the five, to get main draw, get a point. And I lost like four and a third. And I remember like, I didn't have another tournament for a week. And I'm like sitting in my hotel room and I'm like, so bummed. And I'm like, now I got to get up and go practice. Like I got to get up and like, you know what I mean? Like you got to keep going. And it's, I I was in Peoria, Illinois and some random hotel. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, that's when it was over. I was like, I'm just, I I don't know, you know, and finding hitting all I thought in my head was this whole week is going to be a nightmare. And that's just not the mindset you can have to be successful doing it. So that was it for me. And I just, I just started working. I just was like, I'm going to work. And it, it, yeah, I mean, hundred percent. You know, it's all the mindset, and uh, I'm glad that you figured it out early instead of potentially wasting more time and everything. And yeah, I mean, is this insane? You know, just looking at just following these players on like social media, and they're every week they're in a different place. And so, like you said, you've got to be a special type of person to really go through all that, and it's it's not easy and can get really lonely. What inspired you to create? Golub tennis and uh yeah i mean you know and also like how soon after stopping your your stint on the tour did you do that so my dad gave me three months of freedom he said i'll pay for your life for three months <laughs> and nice. i remember i went and played golf pretty much every day at cranon golf course <laughs> uh in key biscayne wow and well nice. they had a thing where if you like work there one day a week you could play free golf so i was like all right i'll uh, i would ranger one day and I'd like fix divots and do all kinds of stuff. And then I would work at Gulliver. I worked at Gulliver and taught some tennis. So I had a little cash to have some fun. And my dad funded the rest and said, you got three months, three months to figure out what you want to do. And so I lived it up for three months, had a great time. And then my brother was, has, has been coaching for a while. And as I said before, he's five years older than me. So he had some established stuff. He's coached some great players. He's an excellent coach. And, um, you know, he was, he was doing some stuff in Tampa. So I, I, I jumped on the opportunity to come up and start working with players. I was still in good shape from playing. So I'd hit with a lot of the kids and, um, I just started working with him and a, a gentleman named Eric Dobsha, who was a fantastic player and played for Florida and has an Academy right now in Tampa also. And we started, I just started coaching and then there wasn't goal of tennis at the time. Uh, you know, Eric and my brother were partners there. And then, we had a demand out in a city called Brandon, which is just outside of Tampa. And I went out there and I started coaching on public courts. And one thing led to another. All of a sudden I had like 16 kids in a clinic by myself on public courts, basket out of my trunk, petrified to go to the club all the time because I mean, it was public courts and there was only four. And if there was anyone from the community using them, I had 16 kids by myself, three courts, two courts. It was stressful. It was a stressful (laughs) 
grind. Again, long story short, me and my brother discussed like, hey, man, the demand out here in Brandon is tremendous. Let's uh, let's join forces and just do it, do it out here. So me and him went to a club, uh, Brandon Sports and Aquatic Center, and we've been there ever since. I think we're nine years now there or so. And uh, there's 10 cores, have four, four hard, six clay, which is great. They've been very supportive of our program. You know, they let us do, they support the juniors. It's like a YMCA feel. You know, it's all about the kids. And uh, yeah, we, we grew the program tremendously. I mean, if I had to guess, I mean, there with Quick Start and all the programs and group, I mean, there's 60 plus, 70 plus. I mean, there's a ton of kids out there. And it's a great program. And we were a family environment like I've been preaching. And, you know, we treat it much like a college program. Everyone's got to be on the same page and helping these kids and getting them into college and changing their lives. And, you know, anytime you see them, that's kind of what inspired it. I mean, it's just a rewarding, it's a rewarding thing, changing someone's life. And, and, you know, the way I coach is, is, is that way. I, I feel like I like to impact the person a lot more than worrying necessarily about forehands and backhands all the time. I mean, I I just think that that's going to guide you further, you know, teaching them work ethic, right from wrong, being good citizens, being good people. Uh, Our place is just very much like that. The environment, anyone who leaves there, you know, it's basically like they call us a family. I mean, kids leave for college and they'll give like a little speech and they're almost in tears telling me, I'm going to miss my family here. And that's the rewarding part. And that's kind of probably why we did it. And it's cool. It's a really cool environment. We enjoy it. Yeah, that's amazing. And, you know, focusing on those main fundamentals like work ethic and, and integrity and stuff like that, that comes back to help the player become even better because then they're going to know that they need to put in the work and have the right mentality and then they'll, you know, produce even better work. So um, over those nine years, uh, Andrew, of uh, the uh, of the program, what's maybe one thing that that you've learned or maybe one thing that that you've changed as far as your approach or anything else after all those years? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say when I first started, I might have been probably a lot more, I don't even want to say the word serious, like maybe too much, if that makes sense, like very mm-hmm. intense, intense and serious. And now I see the value in developing them. I always saw the value in that because that was my pitfall. I think I was never, it was always tennis, tennis, tennis. And it was never really just straight about life because tennis is just an extension of life when it comes to work ethic and how to treat people and how to mm-hmm. act on court and the whole nine yards. And, and mm-hmm. I remember sitting down with Jay Berger right before Big East Championships, and he sat me down. I think I talked to him for like three hours, and he crushed me. He did, but he crushed me in a good way about being that kind of person, being the person that you should be, and that changed me. I mean, and and I had these talks with the kids all the time, I mean, uh, about who they are, how to act, how to behave, responsibility, work ethic, because at the end of the day, you watch TV, and Every single pro, all of these guys, there's not one way, like we talked about, to skin a cat. There's not one forehand. There's not one backhand. There's not one style. There's not one anything. There's not one way that they came up. They all have different stories. But they all do share that in common. Well, at least the majority of them share that in common, that that maturity, that work ethic, that that kind of bond you know, that they share with each other, that the respect that we've been through the grinder and – because it is difficult. And I think sometimes as coaches, you can lose sight of that and not realize that what's going on in these kids' lives every day, like things that 
you might not think are stressful like they do and they'll come to practice stressed out and you got to talk to them it can't be like well why is your attitude bad today it's like hey what's wrong what's going on talk to me like i'm not mad at you like i get it like you're having a bad day you're not like moving or anything i don't want to you know what's going on talk to me like maybe there's something else going on and majority of the time there is so i think that's probably the biggest difference is reading the kids being a little bit more understanding in situations like that and really getting to the core of it. And I know that my sit down conversation with Jay changed me immediately. I played fantastic the rest of the year and nothing changed in my tennis. I changed perspective changed. So I think, uh, I think sometimes rather than, Hey, let's, you know, feed more balls, feed more balls, just sit down and talk to them, see what's really going on. And you may change them in an hour conversation rather than worrying about why they're not moving their feet today. Yeah, it's amazing stuff there, Andrew. I mean, that you know, that's one thing. It's just you're enabling them to confront their problems head on instead of delaying that process and ignoring it potentially. So that's uh, that's something that tennis coaches and everybody should be trying to do or to definitely do. So one thing that I that I read that uh, that that's fantastic is probably more by now, but it said that you've helped over 120 kids get college scholarships. So I was wondering, uh, you know, in your opinion, what are the keys or the main key for a player to get a, a scholarship? I mean, is it like the UTR, the national or world ranking, or is it like who you know, or like what is the the key here to getting a scholarship? Well. And it obviously varies between men's and women's tennis. They're two different ball games. Men, you have to be very elite, and your ranking's got to be nice and high um, to earn those scholarships. I mean, because of Title IX, I think we all know that. I mean, it's tough. It's a lot tougher for for boys. It's still very tough for girls. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot more options for girls, and they have a lot more scholarships. So they're both a little different. Um, I think at the end of the day, what's allowed us to be successful helping these kids get college scholarships and everything is we've had so many coaches come through our facility. I mean, to come watch our kids. And the one thing they always leave with is they absolutely love the environment that they're training in and they love the way we operate. And we love the things that we're saying to them because it's, uh, it's all about the work. It's work ethic. It's how you act. So I think a lot of coaches, yeah, of course, UTRs and all that stuff's important, but there's also a school for everybody. Right. I mean, just because you're not getting a full ride to Stanford doesn't mean you can't go to a a different school. You can't go to Furman or you can't go to Johns Hopkins or you can't go somewhere else. I mean, whatever fits the bill for you. I mean, everyone can work. Everyone doesn't need to have the same goal. So I think the key for us has been we need to make sure that these kids, when they leave here, when they go to the school, that every school is like, thank you for that kid. Like that kid was phenomenal. And I think we've done a really good job of that. So then it becomes a trust factor. Then it's, you know, coaches will reach out to me. Coaches will call me and say, hey, do you have anybody? And, they you know, I'd be like, I do. Maybe they're under the radar. Maybe they're not as good as you would recruit, but give this kid a chance. And, and I don't beat around the bush. Neither does my brother. We're not going to send someone somewhere that they can't hang or blow smoke for a coach. So I think we have earned that trust factor, not only as players. You know, like I said, my brother and I were both great players. But now as coaches, we've earned that trust factor because we're not – if we call you about a player, it, it, it's not like you're going to show up and then be like, well, why did you call me about this kid? Like it's not even, it's not even in the realm of who we would recruit level-wise. So I think the level has to match up to the school obviously. And I think for co- – I know for college, it's so important. No bad apples on the team. Good quality kids. 
kids who have good backgrounds, kids who know work ethic, kids who can handle it. And our kids, it's very rare when a kid leaves our program and they're not overly prepared to go to the college setting. I mean, they're ready. They know what to expect. We treat it the same way. We make sure in our practices, like you're pumping each other up, you're cheering each other on, just like a college atmosphere. It's just the way it is. There's no complaining out there about the level you're playing with. Like, hey, today you may play with the best player out there. Tomorrow you may play with a lower level. Everybody wants to play with someone better. You guys are family. There's value in both of it. You know, playing with good, playing with bad. There's different challenges to that. And, uh, you know, so I think all of that has helped. There's no entitlement really out there. It's a very, and you need that in college because you go to college and you might have been a big fish in juniors, but now everyone's good. You know, I think that can be a real reality check for good players as well. They go to school and it's like, man, I'm playing five this year. I was top five in the country and I'm playing five. And our guys are ready for that reality check. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing environment. Uh, big kudos to you and the coaches for, for that, uh, for creating that environment. So obviously, uh, you know, we mentioned Aerobar in the beginning, and uh, it's uh, it's basically a gluten-free and all-natural high-performance energy bar. And I mean, I've, I've had it, and I think it's fantastic. And I first want to ask you, because this is a very interesting topic, I think, to learn about. So, I mean, first off, how did you get the idea to create Aerobar? It's a good question. Um, my business partner, Mark Aerosmith, who also played at Miami, he, this was, it was actually not a joke, but it was like, he was at the golf course and he saw in the golf course in the pro shop, uh, I've never heard of first tee and 10th tee bars. And jokingly, he's like, we should make a first set and a third set bar. And uh, we were like, oh, you know, we were joking about it. But then we started talking <laughs> and, <clears throat> you know, we started remembering our college days. And I remember, going to CVS or Walgreens or Eckerd's at the time and on a road trip and Jay being like, Hey guys, get what you want for your matches tomorrow. And we all scatter and just go get a bunch of stuff that we wanted on court. Right. There was no real symbiotic thing. There was no real rhyme or reason to what we were doing. You know, you get a banana and you get, you know, some cliff bar. I don't know. You just get a bunch of stuff that you felt you needed on court in case you got hungry or needed some energy. So, um, so we started talking to Mike Russell who's obviously one of the fittest guys ever to play on tour, uh, had to be at his size and everything and, and super healthy still to this day, probably trains harder than most people still. Um, and, um, yeah, we got to talking. We said, do you think this is a need? I mean, we feel that it is. We feel in college tennis, it was a big need. Um, and then in junior tennis as well. I mean, I coach junior tennis, as you know, and I mean, you should see the things these kids are eating. I mean, it's like, I mean, <laughs> hey, oh my goodness, it's terrible. So, um, then we started talking to James and he agreed. So we set out to do it and we, it took a lot of different trial runs. Um, we did things to make it very tennis specific. Um, our chocolate chip bar, um, we didn't want it to melt. We didn't want the chocolate chips to melt. So again, now I know all this at the time, I thought that was impossible. Come to find out we, we put in high melting point chocolate chips. 
so they won't melt in your bag. We wanted to make sure your bag, your bar didn't crumble in your bag. You could throw it around, toss it around, not like a Nature Valley bar or something that you, you throw in your bag, you open it up, and it's crumbs. Yeah, so it's the worst. Yeah, it's the worst. <laughs> so we thought of that um, from a texture standpoint um, nice. in any heat. I mean, I had a test. I literally left it in my trunk for like four months to see what would happen, and it was intact. It was fine. Uh, we wanted to make sure it was easily digestible, that you could eat it. Um, and not need water. So we asked our guys, we, we tested it. Hey, <clears throat> eat it without water. Can you digest it? Is it easy? Um, we did a lot of tennis specific things with the product. And um, yeah, I mean, because we know tennis. I mean, uh, we knew what a tennis player was looking for in regards to that. So that's how we developed it. Awesome. And yeah, you know, just when you said you got to make sure you can eat it without water, I mean, I was thinking about the power bars, man. That's extremely difficult (laughs) to, uh, and I used to do that. So, um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of questions uh, that will come from what you just mentioned. Very interesting. I mean, first off, can you remind us how how you got connected with with, uh, Mike Russell and and James Blake uh, and, and were able to discuss it with them before even creating the product, which was brilliant? (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah, Michael Russell played at Miami with with Mark for a year, and Mark coached him a little bit on tour. And they're from Jacksonville together, so they had that relationship through some tennis connections. Uh, Mark also knew Thomas Blake, James's brother, when they played a little bit on tour. Mark traveled for a while, played on tour. Um, they met each other. Then you know, one thing leads to another. You play, you're playing golf with him and James, and then I meet James through Mark, and you know, it's just a big tennis circle, right? You know, and then we all became friends, and and that's where the story goes with it. I mean, it just, again, just a tight knit tennis community. Everyone somehow has some, you know, like six degrees of separation from another tennis. You can pretty much get in touch with any tennis player you want through someone that you probably know, right? And that's just kind of how it how it evolved. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, I have a couple of these bars next to me, and I'm you know a little hungry, and I actually want to eat it right now, but it would sound horrible <laughs> on the mic here. But uh, otherwise, I'd do it. Also, I mean, as far as like the uh, interesting stuff, like the chocolate chips you mentioned, it's like a high point melting or high melting point. Like, are those specific yep. kinds of chocolate chips or what is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just in, in the food industry, you know, with baking and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it depends how you want. Like if you have a cookie, right? For instance, you have a cookie and they put a chocolate chip in there and, and the chocolate chip is gooey. That would be a lower melting point chocolate chip, and then if you you've had chocolate chip cookies where the where the chocolate chip is a little bit more intact and it's not melted, um, that's a higher melting point chocolate chip. <laughs> I I've definitely developed a PhD in food and nutrition and all kinds of stuff that I did not think existed. Trust me. So yeah, I mean you'd be you'd be surprised with all that stuff, and you know, and one thing I left out in the other thing about the bar was we set out to we wanted to know what people were eating on court. We already knew oh, manually, yeah. but one massive thing of people on court is bananas, obviously for potassium, but a banana is only really valuable for the potassium. So we set out to make sure our bar had more potassium per serving than a banana. So mm-hmm. we did that. And as you see on the bar and we added banana powder to it so that people would get that plus all the other nutrients that are in the bar rather than just making why would you just eat a banana then there's no point right if we can develop something like this yeah yeah and it's uh i mean it's super healthy there's a lot of great ingredients in here i mean can you talk about like pretty much you know what is in it yeah um everything is pretty much anything you can read anything you know we 
we wanted the label to be super clean. None of our professional tennis players would eat it if it was super clean. We wanted no artificial sugars in it. We put honey as our main source of sugar. Um, mm-hmm. And the reason we did that is because honey is a slow-release sugar. It doesn't give you that crash effect. And a lot of artificial sugars and a lot of artificial sweeteners, we could have, we of course made our bars zero sugar and uh, fool you on the wrapper, we could have. But a lot of those artificial sugars will upset your stomach, give bloating and some other things that probably we shouldn't talk about, but <laughs> uh, that I don't think anyone wants to hear about. But yeah, everything's, you know, 70, it's like 73% organic. Um, you know, it is kosher. So, uh, it is pretty much vegan. That's a gray area because our, our, uh, it depends how strict vegan you are. Um, if you're a super strict vegan, mm-hmm. they don't, they consider bees and honey as not vegan. So, but it's a gray, there's plenty of vegans who would consider this vegan. So it's just a little bit of a gray area, but, um, but so, I mean, that's, and again, like I said, there's not one ingredient in there really that you can read and not understand what it is. And that's what we wanted. We didn't want any, any bad ingredients in there and it's super clean, super healthy. I mean, it can't get much healthier than what's in there. Yeah. I mean, I can think to many bars that I've had in the past and, you know, I, I try to get healthy bars, but there's still a couple ingredients at least that are kind of sketchy or there's like way too much sugar. But, uh, this one, you know, in, in eating it, I feel very clean and, uh, good to go and, uh, really have to applaud you on it. I mean, as, as far as the, the flavors, can you talk about the flavors and also like if you're planning to add any others in the future or anything like that? Yeah. Um, the honey cinnamon oat bar, honestly, we wanted to come up with two flavors that would probably hit the majority of people, right? Um, and not be close to the same. So chocolate chip and honey cinnamon oat, we felt were pretty popular. We did a little research to see what the most popular bars were uh, flavor-wise. Um, we do have some ideas for, for some more, um, but our, fir- our next idea 100% is a protein bar, and we're actually working on it right now because nice. this is a before and this is a during product, you know, to mm-hmm. give you that energy. And we want the recovery mm-hmm. one next. And we, I, you know, I actually just read an email this morning working with, there's a gentleman that works in our company with us that has helped us tremendously. And he has a PhD in nutrition and he is just a, he's like a guru of nutrition is, you know, Richard Mensing up in New York. And he works at the John McEnroe tennis Academy and he's in charge of everyone's nutrition and fitness up there of all the facilities. And he's phenomenal. I mean, he's phenomenal. And we've been working with him on a very, very clean, protein bar which is next so that would be the next step for us rather than flavors right now so that we have the before during bar which is this one and then the after after bar after workout after anything so that's where we're at as a company right now yeah that's amazing that's fantastic. Yeah. And I was actually, <laughs> I mean, you keep predicting my questions, Andrew. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, what, what is the best times to eat the bar? And so, you know, you said pretty much before yeah. and during, and then after would be some sort of like a uh, protein or more of a recovery based bar. And, uh, as, as far as, um, the bar, you know, you mentioned that you did a lot of things to make it tennis specific. And I was wondering, is this like a bar that's uh, specifically for tennis players or do you think like other athletes uh, could, could also consume it or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is any athlete can consume this product, obviously. Yeah. But when we set out to do this, our expertise and our knowledge was in tennis. So we wanted to 
we wanted to produce something for everyone who's listening on your show, right? We wanted to produce mm-hmm. it for the tennis player, you know, by the tennis player. I mean, we are tennis guys. We've been through the gamut. We know what you need on court. We know, you know, what you're going through. We wanted to just really dial in and develop that niche brand, that very authentic niche brand with the tennis community. And whatever happens from that happens from that, if that makes sense. Like we, we're just very focused on tennis right now. You know, it's just where we want to be. It's what we care about. It's what we want to give back to. And I'm sure over time, this will branch into other areas, just like a bunch of other bars who started with a niche following, you know, like an RX bar who started in CrossFit. I mean, no one even probably knows that. I mean, they stood there a CrossFit brand. I mean, they, that's how they built their company, hitting CrossFit gyms around Chicago. And, and eventually everyone was asking for it. So, but I think what we're doing right now, I, like I answer all of the Instagram stuff. I reach out to, to players and coaches and uh, like, like when I reached out to you, I want to get our brand out there and let people know that it's authentic. You're talking to the owner of the company. You know, I don't have someone else answering those things. Um, I'm posting all the content. Um, and not because I have to, because I like to, I, I think engaging with my, with the tennis community, you know, I have conversations all the way from nutrition to two hour phone calls with a parent about tennis, asking me questions about tennis. And we never talked about the bar. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's what we're in it for. We're in it for that. We're in it to really impact tennis and, uh, and, and give, give a bar to, you know, give a nutrition product and there will be more nutrition products out to something that's given so much to us and, and people that are, you know, we're all like somewhat related in in a family environment. You, you know, you meet someone, you talk about tennis and you can talk for hours all of a sudden, once you start talking about each other's background and history. So, um, that's, that's why we did that. Love it, man. Love the attitude. And I mean, that that's huge right there. Uh, you know, that's a big, big predictor of success. It's, uh, your passion for the product and how much you, want to be and are involved in it. So that's amazing. You obviously come from a a background of uh, competitive sports. And so you know what it takes to accomplish tough tasks and, uh, and reach your goals. But I mean, what was your expectation of how hard it would be to produce and sell Aerobar? And then what what was the actual reality of it? (laughs) That's the perfect question. That is, that's the million dollar question. Um, I, so I get up every single day at 4.45 every day. I have the same routine. 4.45, I go to the gym, I work out, and then I start my day, and I'm probably not asleep until 10 at night, earliest, right? And it's easier than my tennis journey. I can promise you that. It is definitely easier than my tennis journey. Tennis has taught me so much about work ethic and hard work and how hard it is to make it it's just such a tough, it's just such a tough sport. It's individual. You don't have any teammates to pick you up. And that's very similar to this. I mean, you can make the most or as little of yourself in with our brand as we want to. Um, it's up to us. And that's very similar to tennis. We can either, you know, hire someone to reach out to everyone on Instagram, or we could do it ourselves and be authentic and do it right. Um, so the work ethic, it, tennis has taught me so much about work ethic And, you know, spending five, six hours on the court was way more difficult physically and mentally than what I do now. Now, in terms of like building the brand, it is probably one of the most difficult things I've ever done. It is incredible how hard it is to get people to trust your brand. 
um, and trust you as being authentic. People are very skeptical. And, um, you know, I, that is why I do it the way I do it. That's why I'm the one behind the brand. That's why I'm the one responding. That's why I'm the one answering because I want people to understand this is real. This is authentic. There's no fluff or gimmick behind it. You know, we developed the product for you and, but it's the most difficult thing to get people to trust the brand because everyone has their routines. Everyone has their things they eat, has things they like in order to transfer people over to trusting our brand and using it. Once we do, it's great. I mean, but it takes a while and, and that's the journey we're on. So yeah, it's very difficult to get traction and to get people enjoying it and, uh, stuff. Very tough. Yeah. But again, you're doing a great job. And, uh, I mean, it, it's really real quality stuff. Like, uh, sincerely, you know, being, a an attorney, uh, I'm curious about, uh, your answer here, although I understand if you can't really go deep into it, but just curious, you know, in, in developing the, uh, the Aerobar, I mean, did you run into any legal issues or hardships or anything like that on the business end of it? Uh, yeah. When we, uh, tried to get our name Aerobar, um, there was a company mm-hmm. by the name of Arrowhead Mills that sells like grains and all kinds of stuff. And they challenged our name. <laughs> oh yeah. Wow. Um, you would be shocked by the challenges you get from companies that have nothing to do with your product. Obviously we won, but they challenged our name that it was too close to them because they sell grains and I, you know, like there's oats and stuff in our barns. <laughs> so, so yeah, we got a challenge from them. Um, nothing really else legally. Uh, we, we have a partner, his name's Rob Goldberg, who is an attorney. He's really helped us in this business from a legal standpoint, letting us know, hey, when we do this, we do that. You know, We were almost overly educated going into it because we had a team of guys. You know, Mark is a very smart guy. Rob is a lawyer. Myself at Miami. You know, we, we had a team of people who, like, you know, we went to business school, all of us. We understood what was happening, you know. Uh, we, you know, like shelf life testing and we covered every basis to make sure that we were legally compliant with everything. And and the food industry is interesting, especially a bar because there's nothing in it that can harm you in my bar. Like, you know, there's nothing in it that goes bad. It really, so our, our, we have a year best buy date. It's not even like a, you know, it's like old after that. It's a best buy. So you know, what that means is like, it's basically up to your taste. I mean, I have bars that I have here for two years that don't, they're a little drier, but they don't taste much different. So, you know, unless you have like eggs and stuff like that in there, you know, it's very lenient on that side of it. So it's interesting. And we learned a lot. We've learned a lot going through this process. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, one huge thing you did was uh, create a a great team of people with a bunch of skill sets that you, uh, you really needed. And uh, it seems like you guys are doing fantastic things. As far as, uh, you know, the, the timeline, I was just curious too, like uh, when you started or when did you start selling the bar? And then I, I mean, like maybe a really rough estimate of, of how many you've, you've sold to date. Yeah. So this is an interesting story. So we actually didn't really have a launch, but we, we made bars like four years ago. This is interesting. So we made bars four years ago, just based off, we knew the formula. Like we talked to the players, we developed this product, you know, we learned a lot about packaging and wrappers and all this stuff, but we had no branding. We had no anything. We, we, all we were focused on is developing this product that these people could eat on court, the tennis community. 
and we didn't think of any other aspect of the business. Um, so we made, I think we made like 30 or 40,000 bars and we got rid of all of them. Um, they were all gone and we were like, holy cow, this is great. But we didn't have any, our packaging, it was just like black and green. It was just, it meant nothing. You look at the Aerobar brand, it meant absolutely nothing. You wouldn't look at the wrapper and even understand what it is. And we learned very, you know, harshly that you can't, you just couldn't build a brand that way. There had to be meaning behind the name. There had to be, and there was meaning behind all of it, you know, and we weren't sharing that, you know, we weren't sharing what the meaning was. And if you look at the packaging now, you see all of those ingredients on there and it says on the wrapper, what's in your bag. It's basically, you know, why do you need to bring all of this on court when it's in this bar? It's right here. You know, what, what are you carrying with you? And that, and that what's in your bag slogan kind of translates to all areas, you know, what's in your work bag, what's in your gym bag, what's in, you know, what's in any bag. And we're all carrying some form of bag on a daily basis and, you know, going to school, a backpack, anything, what's in your bag was kind of our brand slogan because we knew that that could translate to people. People could relate to that. And, um, you know, we wanted everyone to see what's in the bar right on the front of the wrapper. You know, we didn't want to hide anything. We wanted you to know it's clean and, you know, it's all on the front of the wrapper. So, yeah. And, and arrow bar means a lot, you know, Mark Aerosmith is, is the guy whose idea it was, but arrow, the whole idea of an arrow was pinpoint accurate, you know, going in a certain direction. And we wanted to be specific and niche to tennis and athletes. And so that's the, the arrow, the direction the company goes. Oh, there you go. You know, I was actually going to ask you, was there any sort of uh, disagreement over the name? You know, why not Andrew Barr? But uh, you explained it. So <laughs> No, there wasn't. There wasn't because uh, our other member's name is Ooh. Goldberg. So Gold Bar, that probably yeah, wouldn't have probably went over not. very well. Gold's Jim would have sued you and all that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we wouldn't have won that Good one. Stuff. And, uh, you know, you're adding to the team fairly frequently it seems from from your instagram that i follow that's the main account i follow and uh i was wondering uh what being a brand ambassador entails and kind of the process for that yeah glad you asked me that so we well i am looking for super passionate people about tennis there really is no set in stone requirement and i wanted it that way i wanted to communicate with the client i wanted them to reach out to me or I reach out to them and ask them if they wanted to try the product, see if they like it. And if they did like it, then let's talk further. If it helps you on court, we want to vary. There's no like, Hey, you got to post this amount of times. You got to do this. It's none of that. It's, it's a very authentic program. Um, we give the junior players a very nice discount on the product as big of a discount as we can give. Um, we send them a t-shirt, we send them a bunch of iron on patches that like you see the pros wearing on tour. And we just, we want, people who love the product. Uh, we don't want it forced. We don't require them anything except, Hey man, tell your friends about it. Tell other tennis players, share it on social media. If you'd like, there's no requirement. We just want authenticity. We want people to understand that this is a product for you and we're here for you. And again, I talk to kids, kids send me their tournament results on there and I'm like, Oh man, great. Keep up the good work. Let me know if you need anything like this. It's just a real, again, family environment. The uh, the ambassadors, some of the uh, some of the uh, coaches, we do sponsor, and same thing. Hey, share with your women's league, share with your men's groups, share with your lessons, if you believe in it. Like that's the key thing for us. Like if someone reaches out to me and says, "Hey, I want to be an ambassador. How do I sign up?" And then I, you know, they're like, "Oh, I don't even need to try the bar." I'm like, "No, no, that's not what I'm looking for." You know what I mean? 
it's uh, try the bar. Like you don't, not everyone likes the same thing. It doesn't hurt my feelings if you don't like it. But at the same time, I want you to be passionate about the brand and the product and the bar because you love it and you eat it daily and it's just part of your life. It's part of your routine um, and you love what we stand for. Uh, we're doing a lot of giving back. We're, you know, we're about to launch a program to uh, any country club or pro shop that wants to carry the bars, um, even college teams, anything. And we're going to give a portion of that back to anything tennis related that they want, whether it's sponsoring, maybe it's a junior player at their club that can't afford travel, then let's write a check to him and them and it supports their tennis. Uh, if there's a tennis charity that you um, are fond of, let's do it to that. Um, but it has to be tennis specific um, and impacting a game. Uh, you know, we're launching a program um, with college tennis the same way where any school will give back a certain percentage. And, you know, as you know, there's teams that struggle with funding. Um, tennis is not exactly a moneymaker <laughs> for colleges. And um, it's a shame because tennis has brought all of us and our, comp our company alone. Uh, you know, Steve Johnson is probably the, arguably the greatest college tennis player ever. Um, Nicole Gibbs played for Stanford. James Blake played for Harvard. Mike Russell played for Miami. Mark and I played for Miami. Tennis has impacted our company alone tremendously. And we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for college tennis. I mean, we wouldn't even know each other. So we want to give back to that as well. And the only way that we can is if we grow as a company. And, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, complain about the popularity of tennis going down. Well, this is this is your chance to, to help give back, right? I mean, you, you carry a great product at your club. You can You can support a kid. You can support an organization. You can... You know, college tennis teams, we give back to, to your school, we give back to the ITA. Yeah, and then that, that's what we're looking to do as a whole. I mean, even Florida tennis, Mark and I were Florida tennis players. You know, we're working with the Florida tennis uh, charitable organization, their charity. And uh, again, same thing, working on different ideas and stuff like that to help give back to a section that, I mean, that was my childhood. I mean, Florida tennis, that's all my friends. I mean, it's everyone I know. I mean, it's still to this day. So, you know, it's, it's just, that's our mission as a company. And, and it's not our mission for any other reason. It's just what we believe in. I mean, it's just what has molded us and we want to give back to that. There's, that's it. So, you know, we're pretty clear on that. That's amazing stuff. Just curious too. I mean, you know, you're involved with a uh, goal of tennis, obviously, and then Aerobar. I mean, is it uh, difficult to balance uh, both of these big projects? I mean, it can be at times. The good news about it is my my tennis academy is more in the afternoons. Um, it's it's an after school program. There's nothing in the mornings for me mm -hmm. with it. So, like I said, I wake up really early and I get cranking on a lot of stuff. Social media has been like a godsend for me, to be honest with you, because I can reach so many people and communicate with them just from my phone. Um, you know, you don't need to be sitting at a desk or a computer all day to be able to reach out to these people and communicate. And I've done a ton of communicating with so many cool people on there. I mean, it's, it's incredible because I'm not a social media guy, meaning like on my own personal life, I don't post anything. I, I'm not like an in the limelight guy in regards to that. You know, I just live a decent private life and I, this has been really cool. It's been outside of my realm and I love it actually. And I never thought I would like, but the engagement with people and seeing the impact and seeing how like, you know, pumped they are. And when they repost, when they post something on social media, 
you know, going out to play tennis and they're holding the bar. It's just rewarding. I mean, it's just like, that's awesome. Like this person loves the product, loves the bar and loves what we stand for. And, you know, but in regards to the demand, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you don't feel like you're doing real work, like for me, it's, I'm communicating with tennis people around the whole country, sometimes the world, we don't ship worldwide yet, but I'm communicating with tennis people around the world about something that I'm passionate about, something that I love. So it's, it's not, it, it's not like a nine to fiver. You know what I mean? It's not like sitting behind a desk or anything. To me, you know, I, I'm laying in bed. And my wife thinks I'm crazy at times. I'm laying in bed. I'm on my phone answering people's questions. Like, and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I just got to, I got to talk to this person real quick. <laughs> like, I'll be like, it's just, uh, it's interesting and it's awesome. I'm, I'm loving it. So it doesn't, it doesn't drain me. Um, like a, like a normal thing, like a normal job or, you know, something where you're, you're looking at the clock, trying to punch the clock. It's just not that for me. Love it. Yeah. And I mean, you're using social media for a very productive purpose, obviously, and giving back and everything, uh, and communicating with the world. So that's fantastic. And that's the very positive side of social media versus maybe others might be wasting too much time on, on it and <laughs> doing other things, but, but, uh, you're, you're doing a great oh, job yeah. with it and, um, oh, yeah. thanks to technology. So, Andrew, I mean, just wonderful stuff. I really do appreciate everything that you have done for the tennis community. So, uh, I mean, you mentioned a bit about it, but uh, I mean, overall, what is next for you and for Aerobar? Next is is the same path we're on. And just and again, I really appreciate you having me on the show after we spoke, because um, the only way for me to get my name out there and to get the brand out there and get people recognizing is all of us supporting each other and having me on this show to speak to all your listeners that don't even know Aerobar exists. I think what's next for Aerobar is just continue to reach out to anyone in the tennis community that wants to discuss the story, that wants to discuss the brand, that wants to be an ambassador, that wants to help promote this for the same reasons we want to, um, and just growing it that way. Um, being at tournaments, being at tennis functions, tennis events, working with different organizations like the USTA, like ITA Tennis, um, just really just keep hammering the tennis world and just being part of it and, and, uh, having great symbiotic relationships with, you know, people like yourself and, um, and, and different things to, you know, people who love tennis, obviously you're passionate about tennis, you know, with the show that you produce and that's really the key. I mean, to me, that's the key. That's, you know, that's everything for all of us. Yeah. Great stuff, Andrew. And yeah, I mean, it's just, uh, I'm very careful about products that I talk about on the show, but, uh, you know, I tried it and I, you know, researched it and, and we chatted and I knew that a, it's a great product and B you are a very passionate, uh, individual and doing great things. So, uh, you know, happy to, to discuss, uh, I mean, your career and also Arabar on the show and where can we follow, uh, you and the brand as well online and, and, uh, in person. Yeah. Mainly the, what I use the most is the Instagram account, which is Arrowbar energy. Um, that's our Instagram handle. That's like the best way to reach me. Um, for sure. Like I check it all the time. I'm communicating all the time on there. Aerobar.com is the website. If you want to learn more about the product, um, but if anyone wants to be a brand ambassador or learn more about it, they can direct message me on there and I'm the one answering the questions. So fire, fire away, <laughs> <laughs> man, you must be typing a lot, a lot every day. Um, but, uh, but you're enjoying it and we do appreciate the direct interaction. Uh, one last question for you, Andrew. Uh, it's a classic that I always ask, uh, what is one key tip that you can give 
us to help us improve our tennis games? I I think the key to improving your tennis game, and I had this conversation with one of my students the other day, is it's not life and death. Like sometimes we make it. There's got to be enjoyment. There's got to be fun behind it. At the same time, you got to be competitive and want to win, and it's that balance. I think the word is balance. Finding the proper balance in your life and in your in your tennis, and not taking it as a life and death matter, and taking it more as like I am lucky to do this. My parents support me, or whoever. And this is this is like not many, not everyone gets to do what you do. Tennis is not a cheap sport. You putting things in perspective and having balance, I think is the best thing I can preach. And I do it all the time to my kids. Cause I, I think a lot of the times they lose that perspective. Like they're crying out there and stuff like that. And you're like, what are you, you're playing tennis. Like you're a tennis player. You, you, like <laughs> you didn't just get awful news about a relative or something like you're playing tennis, like get it in perspective, get your head in perspective of what you're doing. And I think that's helped my tennis Whenever I've played my best tennis, I had healthy balance and I had my life in perspective. Um, when you make a bigger deal out of what it really is, I think that's when things get a little haywire and I think that's where you go wrong. Love it. Fantastic advice. And, you know, you hear the pros like Federer and Nadal talk about the same thing about, you know, it's tennis is just one part of their lives and they're trying to make sure that, you know, everything important to them is going well. Otherwise, the tennis won't go well. So. Andrew, uh, this is great stuff. Thank you very much for coming on to the podcast. I enjoyed uh, speaking with you and uh, just kudos for all the things that you're doing for uh, the community, for your, you know, uh, helping out your students uh, have great careers and lives as well as putting out a very quality product uh, with great ingredients uh, onto the market and uh, for all your efforts there. So thanks again for coming on to the podcast and uh, hope to, uh, you know, talk to you soon or meet you in person sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much. It's been it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew. All right. I really hope you enjoyed my interview with Andrew. Uh, Andrew, thanks a lot for coming on to the show. I really enjoyed speaking with you. And uh, thanks a lot for all your knowledge that you bestowed upon uh, our audience today and myself as well. And looking forward to uh, chatting and meeting up with you again sometime soon. And I would really appreciate it if you all would leave a review for the Tennis Files podcast. I mean, I always talk about trying to improve my game and I'm constantly trying to improve in all areas. Uh, And so I think that uh, by leaving a review, first and foremost, or, you know, of course, just contacting me and letting me know what you think I can do to improve, uh, that would be very helpful. Um, Obviously trying to be better about orating and uh, speaking well, but I know uh, there's probably other things I could be doing too. And so I would really appreciate the feedback um, on that. And uh, I also would like to leave you with a quote, as I often love to do at the end of the show. And this one is by Russell Brand. And Russell said, choose your heroes or they will be chosen for you. Love that quote. Also, as always, all the links and whatnot that were mentioned on the show, resources uh, will be on the show notes page, and this will be at tennisfiles.com slash 122. And again, if you would like to take advantage of the 30% off offer uh, from Andrew and Aerobar, you can just uh, use tennisfiles30. I think I'd recommend all caps just in case if for some reason it doesn't work. But again, that's T-E-N-N-I-S-F-I-L-E-S-3-0. 
And, uh, you know, I don't recommend things lightly. I mean, I've, I made a point to try the bar myself even before we had the interview. And I have been enjoying it, and it's been providing me with some great energy. And I feel clean after eating it. So it's uh, definitely some good stuff there. And thank you so much for listening. Uh, it's always a pleasure to serve you and to, to try to help you all get better and uh, just... You know, any different subject areas uh, or, you know, areas of your tennis game that you need improving, let me know and we'll try to get a guest on or have myself blabber on <laughs> about uh, what I think you all can do to improve your game. So thanks so much and I will see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. This is Mirabon signing out. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.